0: Today we're discussing the Judge's Map for the Weird Weird West. This is our final day talking about a page of this book or a page-like part of this book. Next time, we're going to do a wrap-up episode about the whole thing, but this is the last document, the last piece of paper we haven't talked about, and so it's my last opportunity to get a, a complaint about kind of a pervasive issue in Under the Wire. It is relevant to the map. First of all, of course, this is going to be visual. It's a map. If you want to look at this map, check the visual companion for yesterday. In that visual companion, you will find the Judges map. It's a complete map of the Dodge City region with everything labeled. I mentioned yesterday that the river is labeled River twice, which is clear enough. I would love for it to say River and then for the second label to be still a river, just so we know that this represents updated information. But I guess by default, we assume it's the same river. Unless your proofreader is Heraclitus, this will not be foremost in their mind. A gratuitous reference, but I already did Diogenes in this book, so I felt compelled to follow up. If I do Empedocles too, I believe I get a QP doll. I think that's how it works. Anyway, what the fuck was I talking about? Everything that was labeled yesterday, and a whole lot more is labeled. The river is labeled, the woods are labeled. I didn't miss them on the player's map. What I really do miss on the player's map is these three big dotted circles representing the territory of the three different generals. That's a really significant thing that the author has gone to great pains to make sure the players know when they leave the Krozar camp chunk of the adventure. And that's the same time that they get the map. So there's not really any situation where you get the lay of the land, and the judge would hand you the map, but you don't know where the three generals are. And that's one of the few things you'll actually need to know quite precisely in planning your route as you go places. I mean, we know having read the book that it doesn't make a ton of difference whose territory you walk around in. But you know, if we're just playing this adventure and haven't read it, I at least as a player would assume there's a possibility that I would get captured depending on what their attitude is toward me in this particular place. There might be different combat capabilities and tactics for the different groups. I might be scouted if I'm in someone's territory. If I'm hitting Napoleon first, do I want Alexander to know that I'm walking through his territory toward Napoleon? That's the sort of thing I would be needlessly thinking about as a player. And it would also be one of the few things I can actually control, given the freedom that this map only kind of gives me. I mean, we can walk wherever we want, but if you look at the way that the map is set up... Especially with the woods hindering movement, they're positioned in such a way that given we're on a time limit, we're going to have trouble hitting. There are really only a few different ways for us to approach this, and all of them just revolve around how do we apportion these three generals between two squads. There's not really any question of us exploring, like, the area of the map north of the general's territories, looking around in the mountains for anything. Uh, we would never go in these woods. We've got these perfectly nice woods down here at the bottom. And I mean, if I remember correctly, they make hunting more difficult. And they make movements slower, but I don't think they have any other effect. There's nothing in there to find. Again, you don't know this if you have the player's map. So I guess if you were a particularly enterprising player, you might have your character sort of kill a couple hours looking around the woods to see if there's anything there, but there isn't. So really, like despite the fact that, you know, you're getting out your tape measure and deciding exactly where you want to go and what route you want to take, this map really is like a flowchart or a very small sliding puzzle in disguise. And that's fine. A map is more fun to have than a flowchart. And again, this is from the top-down judge's view. Sometimes there's value in players feeling as though there are lots of opportunities they are passing by to do the thing they chose when, in fact, from a structural point of view, it's basically a straight line with just an empty void around it. Speaking of empty void around it, that brings us to the dumbest thing on this page. I am not a fan of The Crows Are. I think that they are well implemented as Doctor Who-style rubber monster villains, as I talked about when they were first introduced. The question is, what are they doing in this module? And why are they doing it this way? Like not only is meeting the Crozar pretty much the first thing that happens to us, not only do we do essentially nothing but deal with the Crozar in the first 10 chapters of this 28 chapter wild west adventure, but the whole shape of the adventure is much more determined by the Crozar than by anything else. We're captured by the Crozar to begin with. The location of the Crozar camp determines our choice about what route to take in the middle of the adventure, and it will be a route we won't be exploring because there's a time limit caused by the Crowsar, The Crowsar are going to do something in 48 hours. The middle of the adventure is about convincing the generals, but it's about convincing them of what? That there is no viable choice but to ally against the Crowsar. The Crowsar are the most important thing. We get these three generals together to fight the Crowsar. Then we fight the Crowsar. The climax of the whole middle portion of the adventure, where we assemble this Earth General supergroup, is us leaving those generals to do an off-screen mass combat, while we go fight the Crowsar again. By comparison, the three generals are pretty much irrelevant until chapter 11, and then irrelevant again, once we get them on our side. And the chronovore, I mean, other than us idly guessing what Einstein is talking about, the chronovore thing doesn't even show up until we go back to Einstein after the Crowsar situation is resolved, which is practically the end of the adventure. So like this adventure has the chronovore in it, Dr. Doom in it, time falling apart at the seams, potentially, optionally, we can venture into the mountains and find Doom's hideout, we can find Doctor Doom's time ship, you know, we fight all four of those supervillains, and that's in like, I think actually maybe two or three scenes at the very end, they get like 26, 27, and 28, contrasted with the Crows are, who are relevant from like scene 3 to scene 25, and not only relevant, but pretty much the driving force of the adventure. The reason I say all this is, first of all, because I don't like it, and secondly, because that dislike is the reason that I was motivated to think about how we can solve this Krozar problem, like, in-character. If I'm a player playing a player character, this player character, unlike me, is at least marginally more terrified of than bored of the crowzar, since they do have that beta bomb, so my character is motivated to stop them. I, as a player, am motivated to try to find an efficient way to stop them, the does not require me to continue to do lizard shit when I want to do cowboy shit. And so I'm thinking about the details. I have been encouraged to do so. This whole adventure is built upon the strategic situation of the crows are versus the humans. The logic of that defines the constraints that structure the entire adventure. And that logic, that strategy, that structure all really depends upon the assumption that there is um nothing to the east off the side of this map. Like it's just a cliff and you fall off the world, I guess. Because here's the thing. It's weird that we have to fight our way through crowsar lines when we're on our way back from the mountain pass, right? Because like, I didn't think there were that many crowsar. We saw 90 at the camp. That was a lot. There were definitely more in the field, but we're talking about groups of what, four, five, six. And there are a bunch of them out there. I don't think we're meant to assume that they're like all through the woods and all through the mountains or anything like that. So this does seem like too small a number to actually maintain relatively impermeable battle lines all the way from the mountains back to the Crozar camp. But what's more relevant really than the combat effectiveness of the Crozar back to the south of the conflict in the mountains is the supply chain, I think. Because keep in mind, these lizards and these humans are fighting in 114 degree weather. I don't know how many Crozar we're supposed to think are in the field, but surely it's got to be like 500, given the number that have to be at the pass, plus the number that have to be there to effectively cover the whole rest of the map in a column southward. Back to the base, each of those Crozar soldiers needs what? A gallon of water every couple of hours, I think is the recommendation. Working in heat and 114 degree weather is extreme heat. So you're going to have to provision this force with 500 gallons of water an hour, as well as provisioning whoever is in charge of getting those 500 gallons of water to everyone in your force. Once again, the Crozar are not near a water source. Or let me put it another way either they're not near a water source. Or they're on a water source, but we are supposed to understand it to be inaccessible because it's off the edge of the map. So like the crows are can drink there, but we can't go there. And for example, not that we would ever do this, genetically engineer some manner of lizard poison and sprinkle it in the water with a time displaced crop duster, something like that. Obviously, this is hypothetical. That is not a tactic I would use unless there were a crop duster right there. But if we assume that there there actually isn't a water source right there for us to, for example blockade for us to use before we trudge all the way across this desert, then the Crozar need to be getting their water from the river, which is in Alexander's territory, and they need to be moving that water to their forces, not to mention their camp, southward at the same time that they're moving it northward to support their forces in the mountains. So what we're going to have here is an extremely long, attenuated line dependent upon constant water gathering at a river in contested territory in the middle of the line. That seems like a really bad plan on the Crozar's part, especially because the objective of all this is to seize a mountain pass so that they can walk one 50-pound object into a specific point in the mountains and push a button on it. That's something that could be achieved by one reasonably fit Crozar with some nice mountain-colored fatigues. It's one thing to try to get a whole army over and into mountains and fight that way and keep supplied that way. It's another thing to have one person carrying a 50-pound object go into the same mountains to a specific spot and push a button. It would be hard for that one person to get through the mountains, but probably not as hard as this military endeavor that the Crozar have undertaken. Needlessly, as it turns out, because keep in mind, the essential supply, like the heartbeat of our effort, is the water. We can hunt anywhere. The water is the much bigger problem. That means that, like, our base of operations, or our logistical starting point for deploying the forces, is the river. And there's a lot more river on either side of this map, not held by any of Earth's greatest generals. I mean, I guess we'd have to move. That's inconvenient. We've got these seven portables here. What are we supposed to do, leave behind our home? These seven portables that have become like family? Yes, we'll put up new portables at the river, maybe. That would be a good idea. Then we could have a defensible location that, if we sit there and defend it, we won't die of heat exhaustion within literal hours. It's just that I would be willing to suspend disbelief if I were having a ton of fun with these crows are. But I think, especially if you take a certain route especially if your characters are not very effective in combat against the Crozar for whatever reason, I think that section is going to drag. And if you're kind of being forced to play through a draggy section of the plot because it's the only option available to your character, you start looking for other in-character options and you begin to ask, is there any more Kansas off the sides of this map? And if the answer to that is yes, then the judge is going to have a problem keeping you in the tidy confines of the flowchart in disguise. So that is officially it for the Weird Weird West. Join me next time as I talk about what I liked, didn't like, was disappointed by in this module, and, in somewhat greater depth than last time, how I would change this adventure to make it something I would want to run, on MDC, the Mega Dumbcast. This has been MDC. New episodes drop every day except for Sundays, when all the previous week's episodes drop in one big Megasode on the top-secret, patrons-only RSS feed. If you'd like to get access to that feed and support the show, Go to Patreon.com/Megadumbcast. Contact me however you want. I am Megadumbcast on Twitter, Gmail, Podbean, your favorite podcatcher, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This episode's theme music, used under Creative Commons license, is "Western Firefight 2" by Kola, whose work you can find at Kola.com. That's C-U-L-L-A-H.com. Thanks for listening.